Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to the Funky Brain Podcast. My name is Dennis. This is my Funky Brain. We're going to have some fun today. Talk to a very inspiring woman. She's overcome some pretty serious stuff, including alcohol, drug abuse, and sexual abuse on a pretty high level. I'll let her tell you about some of that. She was only 15 years old. Her family moved into an apartment complex managed by former porn star, John Holmes. And after grooming her, he began a sexual relationship with her, manipulating her with drugs and alcohol, and abusing her physically, emotionally, and prostituted her on the streets of Hollywood. And ultimately she was able to escape and turn him over to the police. But today she's a keynote speaker and author, a member of multiple organizations dedicated to abolishing sex trafficking and other types of abuse. Ms. Don Schiller, how are you doing today, Don? Hey, good morning, how are you? Nice to be here. I'm excited that you're here too. And I think you've been sober for what, 22 years, right? 22 years, July 22nd. Can you share with us, uh, share with our listeners a little about your story, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now, like some of the stuff that you've been through and um, were able to overcome to become that beautiful, awesome woman that we see here today? Well, that's such a sweet introduction. Thank you so much, Dennis. Um, I appreciate really that you're doing um, this type of podcast really for folks who are struggling out there. We all need to hear some kind of hope and enlightenment in this time, right? Like especially, not, not, not that we didn't need it before, but I think COVID is like a real new challenge for all of us and um, all of us, especially who are committed to sobriety and recovery and, you know, and, um, and living life, the best life that we can today. Um, you know, it's, it's about, you know, pivot was the, the, the term before, but, you know, I really appreciate the podcasts and things like this and virtual meetings are being uh, available for folks, you know, so our resources have been cut off on one end, but they've been expanded on another. And I, and, and, and I think that that's the good news. That's the glass half full and not half empty, right? You know, um, as you mentioned, my story was really rough. Um, rough in the beginning, um, since this is a drug and alcohol, and I have shared my story of, of uh, addiction and recovery before many times of um, alcoholism and addiction. And, um, you know, I grew up initially, my father was a Vietnam vet, and I grew up in uh, a small town in New Jersey, but my father was really disturbed from Vietnam, and he was an alcoholic. He was definitely an army alcoholic, you know, drinking with the soldiers kind of guy. And, um, and, you know, Vietnam really did a lot to him. He moved us down to Florida and then really pretty much abandoned us. Um, in that neighborhood um, that he left us, it was pretty tough. It was a really rough area. There was a lot of like, you know, um, racial violence. And before I even, anybody even understood it, and we're talking about the 70s. And so, you know, um, it was about um, being pushed out of the city into these impoverished suburbs and folks really fighting um, and being miserable about, you know, being othered and, and marginalized. And so there was a lot of anger and resentments on the streets that I grew up in. And, um, and you know, there was a lot of fighting. And I think that I, um, my mom had to work three jobs just to keep us, you know, so she wasn't there. So essentially we were latchkey kids and uh, just trying not to get beat up or, you know, get our lunch money stolen. And so, you know, it seemed, it seemed like in my experience that my neighborhood um, and who I was in my neighborhood, I segued right to the, to the folks that were using to escape their environment. So the pot was, you know, we had a place called Sherry's Corner where we hung out, you know, and yeah, and everybody like smoked weed and got loaded. And, you know, I think at the time, and I don't know if anybody has um, a reference on this, but, you know, quaaludes were a big thing. So we like, anybody could score a quaalude, that was a big deal. Um, but that was a means of escape. And I realized that, you know, um, today I realize now many years later that, um, that drugs and alcohol were medication for me. They were a way of coping and um, to deal with the pain that, was, uh, that I was living with. I mean, we were in fear of getting beat up or having to fight. And um, as a kid, you know, gosh, I remember 10 years old and my one, a, a girl that I thought was a really dear friend ended up jumping me and beating the crap out of me as I was walking my dog. Uh, you know, that was the kind of fear. And so I essentially in my neighborhood, I had to learn how to fight. I had no idea how to fight. 
who at 10 years old, 11, 12 years old, 13 years old, even knows this kind of thing, um, you know, or even deserves to know that kind of thing. But that was the toughness that I, that I had to um, live with. Anyway, my father comes back and I'm 15 and he divorces my mother and says, listen, I'm going to California. You want to come with us? So my sister and I said, yes. And she's 14. And we kind of camp because we're homeless. We camp all the way over to California, pick up a hitchhiker in Colorado who's who says, hey, if you take me all the way to Glendale, California, I'll see if my girlfriend will let you sleep, um, you know, well, let you crash at her place until we can, uh, uh, until you get on your feet. And so my dad was like, yeah, cool. And the thing about this at the time, I mean, there's like always so many complex things happening in people's lives. There's never any one uh, like, oh, this happened, this happened, and then this happened. There's always multiple people, multiple stories from people that come in and that influence us. And as kids, my dad, because he was a Vietnam vet, he had also experienced um, some debilitating Agent Orange effects and had lost his a nose completely off of his face. So he was literally like a mummy bandaged. So I had a lot of compassion for my disabled father who had, um, you know, experienced this um, this disability from the war. And, but I also erased at the time the fact that he had abandoned us um, and was an alcoholic and um, was really self-serving in a lot of ways, you know? Um, it didn't matter to me because I thought I was, you know, I had idolized him. So that, <laughs> that kind of set me up and coming from a really bad neighborhood, it kind of set me up to be really vulnerable for any other predator that was out there. And I talk about this all the time in my, in my work in anti-violence, anti-trafficking. I talk about what um, you know, situations that create the perfect quote unquote uh, victim for somebody who's, you know, praying for someone like that. And I walked in to this, um, this lady who's the hitchhiker's girlfriend's, um, you know, complex with my father. She gave us permission to stay there. Um, and turns out that John Holmes was the manager of that complex. So at nighttime he was making, he was what they called the king of porn. And in the daytime, he was the manager of this little tiny apartment complex in Glendale, California. You know, we, we didn't know, I didn't know anything about porn at the time. Like, even though I came from a rough neighborhood, I mean, it was the 70s. You don't have the internet then. Like, maybe we had, there was a circulating really old Playboy book, you know, magazine that kind of traveled around. But, you know, mostly I liked Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin. So it wasn't really... That wasn't any, anywhere near my radar. So I was very inexperienced and very naive in a lot of ways. Um, but I, um, but he kind of weaseled his way in. And what I didn't realize was because of my situation of my past and my vulnerabilities and the fact that I was already, you know, a, a, a pretty constant weed smoker was that, you know, I was a perfect target for somebody who had ill intent. And he was um, a predator who, um, although he could, technically, you know, be with any woman he wanted. He preyed on me as a 15 year old by grooming me for about six months. And then finally, um, you know, stepped in and pretended to be my boyfriend. He didn't care, you know, and I, in my mind, and my father was slowly pulling away. So that, that transition happened so fast. It's kind of like a blip in my mind. But the point about drugs and alcohol with that is that he, he became the supplier. So John Holmes became the supplier of all the marijuana. And so anytime that my father, because my father smoked too, and one of the things my father was would would be would say to me was like, "Oh my gosh, you can roll a really good joint." Like, uh, you know, <laughs> what a great kid you are. And to me, that was like high praise, right, for somebody who had been missing their father figure out of their life, who had seen him as a hero, you know, a military hero, etc. Wrapping that up, you know, it really was pretty quick that John Holmes took the place of my father. He started waking me up for school. He did all these things that are inappropriate. He was 32 years old too, by the way. And, um, you know, and, but, and nobody said anything. It was just a bizarre thing. Nobody in this apartment complex said anything. He made obvious passes at me, but they weren't blatant. So this is the idea of a predator. Anyway, my, he pushed my father out kind of basically, he ended up becoming very controlling, manipulative. And uh, pretty soon I was his, uh, his, what I thought was his girlfriend, which was not true. Obviously it was not true. <laughs> there was such a great power differential, but in my mind, I thought it was real. And um, he set me up in an apartment, in a little garage, like apartment unit, which was really just kind of like a hallway between two garages. And I thought, oh wow, this is my first apartment. Isn't this great? And I had entered the 10th grade, um, but it, it, I ended up, he, he kind of forced me to leave 
the 10th grade because he was very jealous. He would just start being very controlling. And he was very controlling of the drugs. Uh, my father eventually kind of segued out and left and said, you know, hey, well, you know, I guess you're on your own. And I had turned 16. And so in my dad's mind, because he hadn't been in our lives for a long time and um, you know, and he saw that I moved into that garage place. He says, well, I guess you want to stay. And he just basically gave me $20 and said, good luck and you know, left me, <laughs> which again, he's the guy that I idolized, but he wasn't a good father, you know? So at that point I'm 16 years old and John Holmes basically has control of where I live. Cause he's the manager of the apartment complex and he's, you know, making sure I stay there. He's bringing me all the food. He's um, making sure, you know, he's giving me some odd jobs to clean around, but at the same time, he's having his way with me and he's bringing in, um, you know, marijuana and he would bring in alcohol because he always had like a bottle. It was like a thing of whiskey was a big deal to him. Um, and, but he was always in control of it. That didn't mean that I didn't need it. That didn't mean that I didn't crave it because I did. It was something I already arrived with and I had this, you know, it was my medicine. So if things in life didn't make sense or if they were hurtful or painful, like I was experiencing with John, I, it wasn't right. I knew it wasn't right. It was, it was hurtful and painful. There wasn't, it wasn't a, you know, I was completely really, I had no power in my own life. Um, but with the drugs and alcohol, that kind of made it like, okay, I don't have to think about it, you know? And so I relied heavily on that. It wasn't long before he started bringing in cocaine and, you know, had me start, yeah, you know, what I know today is called labor trafficking. If you are um, manipulated into um, selling drugs, that's essentially called labor trafficking today. And so, yeah, we're learning a lot more today about um, how to find language for abuses that happened in the past. So that, you know, just essentially to get that through, John became very violent. He was also in the beginning also very violent, but I never told anybody, you know, he would yank my hair or elbow me in the ribs. And, you know, at times when I thought that I could say something or have a personality, he would shoot me down and sometimes shoot me down physically. Um, you know, uh, if I didn't follow directions, he wouldn't show up with uh, food, you know, and, and I felt abandoned for days. And then I became very, you know, sorry. And, you know, I didn't mean to hurt your feeling all of those things. He became embroiled with a lot of dealers. Like I said, he was, you know, I was driving with him. I was wrapping bindles. I was going with him and he would tell me what I was allowed to use. If he was in control, it was enough to be addicted, but it wasn't enough to go overboard because he had to be in control of it. But clearly I was addicted because it was my only, it, to me, in my mind at the time, it was the only thing that made me forget about the pain in my life because there wasn't anything about this that was, was happy. You know, um, I created these pockets, what I call pockets of happiness or joy um, around me. And I think that anybody who survives tough situations, that's what they do to get through. Um, he eventually, um, you know, started selling me on the streets of Hollywood he was uh, a master pimp. Another side of him that I didn't know because I was never involved in the porn world because I was actually his underage secret that lived in this little apartment complex in, in uh, you know, a suburb of Hollywood. So that's probably a saving grace, I think, back. And I think that I wasn't embroiled in a lot of that. He got embroiled with some really bad people in Los Angeles that were um, organized crime folks who were very, very, very dangerous and um, drug me through um, sitting outside of houses that he made trades for. He sold me to one of these under these um, organized crime kingpins, Eddie Nash, um, once on Christmas Day and uh, once on my birthday, um, which happens to fall four days after Christmas. But um, yeah, and um, extremely dangerous, dangerous, dangerous situations. You know, he threw me in the trunk of a car and took me to a brothel where I was like trapped by a woman who was, um, uh, you know, she was a madam and I had no, and she was, she was so cruel. She was so cruel. And so I saw an underworld that was really dark, really, really dark. And anytime at that time, I was so controlled by the drugs too, that anytime I was given a little small amount to me, it was like, it was, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. From the bottom of my heart that I can escape this. So on the night of July 1st, uh, 1981, four people were bludgeoned to death, and one of them um, was bludgeoned so badly that she never recovered, meant, you know, fully. And on Wonderland Avenue, which was a house that we sold, we brought drugs in. You know, I always sat outside. I never went inside, which is another thing, because he was so jealous. Anybody, you know, he had to control me so much 
that that again maybe was a saving grace, but he did, um, they were purportedly um, bludgeoned to death by the um, uh, organized crime kingpin, Eddie Nash, that he did sell me to. So he didn't quite protect me. <laughs> it wasn't, and there wasn't anything about protection. It was all self-serving. Whatever, whatever worked best for him is really what he was doing. He wasn't doing anything that worked for me at all. The people were murdered. We went on the run and um, I thought he was gonna be okay. I guess in my mind still at the time, I was 20 years old by this time. So I had been with him going on five and a half years. And we went on the run and ended up back in Florida and um, wanted by the FBI wanted by just about everybody and wanted by um, organized crime. So there were contracts out on us and me only because I was associated with him. You know, we were laying low for a while uh, and then he got the bright idea that he was going to, that we needed more money and he was going to sell me on the beach. I always tried to run. I always tried to run from him. It was something because I never wanted to be sold. I mean, it was never anything I wanted to do. So I, I would cry and beg and plead. And then if I could find an opening, I would try to run. And um, I've written about that in my book several times on what, what happened on those occasions. But this last time, he was selling me on the beach of Florida. He wanted to do it again. And I said, please don't. Please, I don't. I can't. And I saw the door had a crack in it. I ran for the door. I made it downstairs to the pool area with, where there was a snack bar. And the folks at this hotel, they thought of us as the kind of like the nice couple. And we had assumed names. They didn't know the side of us or the history of being on the run from the murders. He uh, ran down after me, grabbed me by my hair and beat me in front of everyone and drug me back upstairs. This was the first time anybody ever witnessed him, any good people, I should say, witnessed him hit me publicly. Um, so it was the next morning. And that same group of people banged on the door. They waited for him to leave and they said, get your things, you're coming with us. And they found a safe house for me. And from there, I called my family and from my family, my family, I mean, you know, FBI, everybody was waiting at my family's to hear from when the minute you contact friends and family, they trace you. So um, what happened was they sent my brother down and um, I met my brother in a park and um, I told them where John was and I gave him up to the police and they extradited him. It turns out that I am uh, friends with those law enforcement agencies uh, officers today. Um, one of them, Tom Lang, is, was, is quite well known for high profile cases, Wonderland being one of them, and then also, um, you know, uh, O.J. Simpson being another one. Um, and he's, um, you know, he's written a book as well. But they told me that, you know, there was about eight contracts out on us that if I didn't do something to separate myself from him, then I would be in. I would probably end up dead. So at this time you think, okay, freedom. Oh my gosh, I'm away from this horrible person. But I am not doing drugs. I blamed everything on drugs at the time, but it didn't stop me from drinking. It didn't mean I wasn't still addicted to some kind of mood altering substance that would make me, but I was really saying, no, 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 absolutely no drugs. That was the, that's what caused it. And, but weed and, um, and alcohol was still okay. And so I still drank and, um, and from there, I, you know, I, I met back up with my father and, you know, this is part of a book that I haven't written yet. So I'm going to keep this one a little short, but ended up in Southeast Asia for about another five and a half years. But my father being, yeah, and he owned, he and he bought a hotel and a bar, of course, on uh, Phuket Island in uh, Patong Beach, Thailand. And uh, in that time that I hadn't seen him since John, he left me with John. I ended up in Southeast Asia, mostly because A, I was on the run. I knew that John was telling people that I was a snitch and that there was probably people still going to be after me. Um, and I was afraid of being in my own country. So um, I drank with military. I drank with expats. I drank so much in Southeast Asia because there was so much pain from the trauma that I had gone through and there was no counseling or healing sessions or, you know, like I'm in Southeast Asia in the early eighties, 1982 was the first year I got there. And, um, you know, there's no 12 step recovery programs. There's no, I'm on an Island <laughs> off the Indian ocean and I have come with so much pain and a history of trauma so I think I drank, I drank my way through Southeast Asia and there was way more trauma, way more things happened because you just don't get well by removing yourself from the, you know, what I called, you know, the fist, John was the fist, you know, there's so much more to go through. Um, but my journey was that I ended up uh, finally back in um, 
about 1987 back in the United States. Um, I was really broken and lonely in Southeast Asia. I was so disenfranchised from anything that I felt was who I was. I was lost and alone and scared and didn't speak the languages many times, um, you know, and um, uh, didn't understand the culture. I mean, I was definitely an outsider in an outside world. So that said, I made it back to the United States and again, still just drinking, but, um, and I've tried to have what quote unquote, I thought, and then, and I made it back in 87 and I came back to Los Angeles um, thinking I was going to confront John because I'd heard that he was um, in the hospital dying of AIDS. And um, I didn't quite make it, but in 1988, I was back in Los Angeles and I was feeling like, okay, I didn't have to hide anymore because he was, he had passed away, but I was still drinking on a daily. I tried to have a normal life. I tried to, to work in the legal field. I managed my drinking, right? So I would drink in the evenings and I would drink on the weekends, but during work, I never drank that was supposed to be okay well it didn't last and you know um and i still never had any therapy i still never had um any kind of recognition about what addiction was even though it was just it was all around me people that came into my life were also alcoholics and you know because uh, we like company you know i ended up being in a relationship with another alcoholic um, and that ended um, very tragically when they they committed suicide and and I had no foundation at that time. And the really interesting thing is I had tried to get sober six months before uh, that happened, but uh, it didn't stick because I, I was, I just didn't really work. I wasn't very serious about it. I don't think, I think I just wanted to, um, I don't know, but I was curious. Um, but what happened at that point, I was absolutely shattered. I had no healing. I had, um, and all the memories and the trauma triggers and everything from John and from, you know, growing up in a rough neighborhood and from escaping and being on the run basically in Southeast Asia for so many years and encountering so many other, um, you know, crazy things and bizarre things and bizarre people and mean people. Um, then I was just overwhelmed and I was done. I was done with life. It's pretty much done with life. And, uh, and I gave up. And um, pretty soon people were coming into my life that had more than alcohol because I just let anybody in. Sure, come in. I didn't care. Um, you know, and they were vultures. And my looking back in this, you know, sober lens that I have now, I can see how they all just wanted, you know, something from me to so that they could get high and continue their their addiction. And it didn't take long before somebody put a needle in my arm because I didn't care. I just didn't care. And, um, and that was four years and my bottom was in, uh, uh, living in a junkyard. I was homeless for those four years. Um, I had spent time, you know, in parks, in food lines, um, in abandoned cars. And my last stop was in this junkyard on the coast of Northern California. Um, and, and, um, just wanting to die, waiting to die. I couldn't find enough drugs or alcohol to kill me. It just like, it was but I, that was my only goal in life at that time. I had such a horrible, horrible, horrible life in my view, you know, that still brought me so much pain and I didn't know how to get out of it. Miracles happen. And uh, literally this is the most bizarre story in my mind. It's the most bizarre story. Um, but because this junkyard was home to other transient folks like me, homeless folks like me, um, you know, little encampments here and there, I was at the gate of this uh, junkyard one day and I just couldn't figure out what to do. And I was in a, probably just in a numb state and the car pulls up and a woman lets out one of the girls that was also living on the, uh, um, at the junkyard. And she looks at me and she said, do I know you? And I said, no, 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 no. You know, because I didn't speak to people anymore. I was legitimately non, I, I was a shadow figure. If you, you know, want to have a phrase for it. And she says, well, I just dropped your friend off from an AA meeting and I'll be back tomorrow. And uh, if you want to go, I'll be here. And I never, ever in a million years thought that I would do it. But, you know, I packed up my bottle of tequila, you know, like a good alcoholic would, took a few slugs, had the bottle in my bag and, um, you know, and uh, met her the next morning. I don't know why I did, but I did. 
And um, I just actually spoke to that woman this morning. We are dear friends to this day. Yes, yes, so yes, very much adore her. And um, and I was so I was literally drunk for the first two weeks. That was the weekend of the Fourth of July, and then July twenty second was the day I finally committed to sobriety. From that moment on, doors started to open. Drug and alcohol counseling began to happen. Suddenly, the drug and alcohol counselor that I was seeing plus. The, um, you know, I was going regularly to meetings. It was a small town in, you know, uh, Northern California on the coast. So it was just pretty much a conglomerate of everybody who was addicted to everything <laughs> showed up. We didn't really kind of have a lot of restrictions because then you'd end up in a meeting by yourself pretty much. So, um, so you let everybody in, food addicts, whoever had a problem. And, um, and they listened and they loved me. And, you know, they didn't care that I had such a horrible past. I was so shamed. And had so much remorse but the drug and alcohol counselor really helped me work through a lot of PTSD issues um, with some very um, groundbreaking uh, PSD um, techniques and, um, and 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 life began for me there I started to really understand and unpack my past and understand you know um, all of the elements that were kind of, you know, that created who I was, what made me perfect as a victim, why I stayed because, you know, I was an addict. So that was a huge hook for me already. That was a huge way to manipulate somebody is, you know, you, if you meet an addict and you've got the supply, you've, you've got a slave pretty much, you know, I mean, that's just the truth. So 22 years go by, um, you know, I've had, I found a lot of things, like I said, finding the glass half full as opposed to half empty. Some of these things took a lot of years to get through. Um, in the meantime, Hollywood is wanting to tell the story of these murders because they're pretty infamous here in Los Angeles um, and, and um, nationally, even globally, I've had people. But So they wanted to retell it and they hired a private investigator to find me um, because they, wanted, they knew I was alive. They knew I was a part of it because of arrest records. And um, they had a script that was just a mess. It was not anything close to the truth. And they said, look, we're going to do it with or without you. And at that, by that time, I had already, I had just two years sobriety and I had a brand new baby. And I thought this was the worst thing that could happen to me, you know, and I really just dug in. I dug into all of my wise counsel and the folks who said, you know, we have to walk through this pain. You can't just escape and go use again. You've got to. And I thought, I can't relive this. And on the major screen where people are going to see this abuse, they're going to see that I'm with this guy who's like what I consider the most horrible guy on the planet. And they're going to see all kinds of things. And I said, well, you know, I agreed to do it um, because I, I corrected the script in a lot of ways. I wanted it to be clear that people understood that I was being battered um, and that it was, it was a huge part of why he controlled me. Um, and, and I had a, it, it dove me into being willing to go through that. All of a sudden, I got all this extra therapy and support um, from people who really said, you know what, you can do this and this can be healing. You know, it didn't feel like it was going to be healing at first. And I know how when we go through things that are tough and painful um, emotionally, um, it's a hard first step into that pain. But you just take the next step and you take the next step and you take the next step until you're through it. And then you're able to see the grace that's left behind and the people that you do get to help. It became empowering for me because in a way I was taking back my own voice that had been stolen from me for so many years. Um, people were telling this story and they were telling it wrong. And to be honest with you, um, after the film Wonderland came out, um, they did cut out the part where I was being battered. And that was uh, another very emotionally uh, traumatizing thing for me. But I didn't give up and I had my wise counsel and I walked through the pain and I really tried to see what's the best thing that I can do. What's the next right thing for me to do? I looked at my daughter who was, you know, three at the time when the film came out. And I thought if anybody ever sees this movie and that's all they know about my story, it's not going to be the same story. And I don't want her to know just that about her mom. So I embarked on learning how to write a memoir. <laughs> and um, I didn't have a lot of experience at the time. I didn't have a lot of education, but um, I began writing. I began writing with writers. It took me about six and a half years to get a pretty solid manuscript down and another couple of years to get it published. Um, and in the meantime, I got my undergrad degree and uh, et cetera.
From that point, the book ended up being a real good way for me to continue giving back and doing service, you know, turning my, um, my junk into treasure, whatever the phrases are, there's multiple phrases for that, you know, um, turning your mess into, what is it? You know the phrase, don't you? Uh, well, I mean, just using your past to make you stronger. I don't know that phrase specifically. I know a lot of them. Turning your mess into a message. That's it. That's right. the one. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways to say it. But, um, but you know, I don't, you know, we say we, we, we won't regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. That has been a reality for me. I really have to dig in and unpack my own past, not only to, to you know, um, to not feel the shame and remorse. It, it ended up helping people, but it was also, but it was mostly for me, it was cathartic for me to be able to say, I, you know, this is who I am. This is where I came from. I processed a lot of forgiveness. I processed a lot of, I let go of a lot of guilt that I didn't deserve. I mean, I was 15. Uh, you know, I was told, oh, well, you're 15. You can handle it. But guess what? 15, you don't know what the hell you're doing. I'm sorry. Just FYI. I have a daughter's 20 now. 15. You don't know. <laughs> what a great story. I mean, like, but there's so many different things that you were talking about. And I was taking notes on some of them. But, you know, using that pain and that darkness to grow into who you are today. And then like going, one of the things you talked about going into Asia and spending mm -hmm. that five years there, but you can't run away. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that everywhere I go, there I am. And then that feeling the pain all the way through, you know, it's so important for people to know, like, I love this story because we've all been dealt stuff or, or we use whatever um, excuses we want to, 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 you know, get sympathy or, petty from somebody but it does it keeps us sick you know until we feel that pain all the way through you know we used drugs and alcohol and I had my own pain mine I don't believe was as, as bad as yours or as dark as yours at all but you know to me it's real and then to a lot of people whether it's like I you know people I we talk to all the time I'm sure you do too but for somebody that like they feel like they're fat or they're not good enough or their parents didn't like them or their friends in, in high school didn't like them. So they use those as excuses to drink mm -hmm. or drug or numb out and not want to feel. But the mm -hmm. thing is, and Buddha said this 2,500 years ago, three things can't be hidden long, the sun, the moon, and the truth. Yeah. And until we face that, whatever our pain is, we stay stuck and we can't grow and experience all that life has to offer. And it's hard. You know, we talk about this all the time. It's like, I'm, it's not I just stopped drinking and then life was rainbows and unicorns. Life, I, I stopped drinking and then I get a chance to get through all those things so I can get to the good stuff. Mm -hmm. But then while I'm doing that, other shitty stuff comes at me. And then I have, but then along the way, I learned how to get through that stuff. But I'm going through a tough time now. It's been 17 years since I've been sober and I'm going through like one of the hardest periods of my life. But I have the tools. I have a coach and a mentor that, you know, he inspires me every day. And when I wake up and I'm in some sadness, I write, I read, I mm -hmm. exercise, mm -hmm. I drink hot water, you know, mm -hmm. whatever it is like, like that's getting you through stuff. Like we learn these tools along the way and, mm -hmm. and then we get through it. And then we become somebody like you who's inspiring, powerful and reasonably happy. The rewards for doing the hard work are immeasurable. And I think that that's, um, you know, when we talk about my accolades, I belong to so many organizations now. My undergrad degree, um, you know, my book got published. I, I speak nationally, which during the time of COVID I'm doing online now, but, but, um, but I speak nationally and I've been invited to so many wonderful spaces. Um, I consult with the Department of State, which who thought ever, you know, running, you know, like running from the Wonderland murders, I was ever going to be have clearance with the Department of State. But I do, and I consult and um, on anti-trafficking issues. Um, we have better language to understand um, to understand you know abuse and victimization and survivorship. Um, I you know walking through the pain and having all these tools to help us get through it is is real important. But the rewards are so amazing. Having my daughter in my life is amazing. Um, at the moment, she's struggling with some health issues, but you know what? I have her in my life and that's, that's brilliant to me. I never thought thinking back in that junkyard that I would ever have a child ever. I didn't think there was a hope for me, you know? Um, 
there's the, you know, I ended up getting a, a teaching fellowship. I was awarded a teaching fellowship at Oregon State University um, at, for graduate school, which, you know, is a lot of work, but I have a master's today, you know? Um, so it's, and, and it's all to continue and to do the next right thing, because I really believe that you have to have, your intentions have to be centered. You really have to do the next right thing. And the right thing is definitely specific for an individual, but it has to be right. And I mean that, and, and we know that by self-examination, you have to, you know, you're always, you know, um, self-reflexivity and looking in on yourself and saying, you know, could I have done that better? Is there something I need to do to, you know, to just change something that I did that was, you know, out of step or maybe hurt someone's feelings, et cetera. And, you know, I'm constantly, you have to be constantly self-aware and if you're not self, you know, so that means you have to be present, right? But the rewards are so great. Um, you know, I've, I don't know. I mean, I can only say that I have such good friends in my life. They're not out trying to get me. They're not out trying to put needles in my arms today. They're here to support me. They're here to support my daughter. I mean, I have, uh, you know, I love, I love more than I ever thought I could love because the love before was broken. It was wrong. It was, it was misdirected. And we're all human creatures who need to love. We need to bond with people, you know, and that was my greatest, what, you know, that was my greatest defect that was preyed upon was my need to be loved and cared for. So I've had to learn how to do it, you know, with your self-care uh, tips that you just said, those are the ways that we love ourselves. And we receive that in ourselves, like it, as caring and nurturing and that we matter. You know, a lot of the therapy that I did said, you know, look at, forgive the little girl, forgive that teenager, love that teenager, because it never, that teenager, that child never experienced an embrace, a kindness, a kindness that wasn't you know, with one hand out and the other hand ready with the knife, you know, it was so trust had to be built again. I wake up, I go to sleep at night and I wake up, I could never sleep at night before, you know, that was a huge problem for me. A lot of people come to me now because mostly because my book and there's a lot of folks who struggle, who struggle with trauma and trying to understand their place and their worth and their value um, in this world. The world changes on a daily, right? We're sitting here in COVID world now, and we have to be able to, there's a saying in Southeast Asia that I learned, it's called, um, and the Thai people say it so lovely, it's, um, and I won't repeat Thai because I'll probably butcher it, but um, it, it means to bend like the rice in the wind. That's like life on life's terms. That just is another way of saying it, you know, um, that we need to say, oh, I stepped here yesterday, but I have to step here today. It's okay. We have to really just focus on, you know, like examining our fear and where that comes from and what's the core motivator for fear. And, you know, just flip the switch, flip the switch. Yeah, I spent a lot of years, I remember sitting there and just whining and complaining in my first years. I did it for so long. I thought, you know, um, and I was in groups of people who were just loving and listening, but I thought, oh my gosh, I'm so tired of saying the same thing over and over again. I have just repeated this, you know, um, uh, problem more times and in more ways than I could possibly imagine. And that's all I've done was I've just reworded the same problem. I never, I never got through it. So sometimes, you know, things take a while to get through and sometimes they happen quickly, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. Pain is the great motivator. It's like, but if everything's going well, why do I need to change? Right. So I need to be in enough pain. That's why everybody talks about the rock bottom stuff, but yeah. I don't know how to get through it. And I love what you were talking about. We just do the next right thing and we have to take care of ourselves. But when we talk about the next right thing, you know, I don't know how to get there. I from here, but I don't need to yet. I just have to do the next right thing. Sometimes the next right thing is like, get some ice cream. Right. You know, it's just like, what do I need to do right now? I need to like take a shower or get dressed because it's overwhelming. And most people fail in sobriety because it's overwhelming. You know, mm -hmm. we want that instant gratification. I don't understand what's going on right now. I'm full of fear, anger, insecurity, resentment, mm -hmm. you know, fill in the blank. And I don't know how to get beyond that. So if I drink, I don't have to worry about that right now. But now that I get sober, the, and this is, the, this is the hard part about sobriety, there's no loopholes, right? So I, I can't just not drink, but I also, like all this other stuff, like 
I can't eat two pounds of chocolate either. And I can't watch porn and I can't go <laughs> shopping and spend money I don't have. And I, those are all distractions from feeling. You know, when you were talking about, I need to feel that all the way through. I need to walk all the way through that pain to the other side. And then I grow. And then when that problem or that fear or insecurity or whatever comes up again, I know I can get through it. Mm -hmm. I and did. we can't walk through it. We can't like, you know, do a mad dash through it either because we want to get it over with, but we have to walk at its pace. And yeah. that's, that's where patience comes in and just being in the moment and trusting the process, all of those things happen. And, you know, you can't like, I, you know, you would want to be to the other side. Like you were saying, we want to get through, people get overwhelmed. So they just want to rush through it because they don't want to feel it so hard. That's another aspect of walking through the pain is just, sometimes you have to be in it. Sit in it. I know. And I have people call me. I have one of my clients texted me the other night and she's like, am I feeling this pain, this sadness? Am I supposed to just sit in it? And I was like, yeah. Yeah. That's it. Because anything that you're going to do at that moment is going to distract you. And one of the things I talk about with like the, with the fear or the pain, the sadness, whatever it is that's coming through, heartache, grief, you know, loss, as if it comes in, if it's like coming in one side, right? Mm -hmm. And then it goes through my head mm -hmm. and then it's swirling around in there and I process it. Whatever, mm -hmm. you know, walking through that. I love how you said that. I have to go through it at, at its pace. Yeah. And then if I process it and feel it, it just kind of comes out the other side at some point, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. But if well, I don't, like what happens is it comes in, here comes the pain, here comes the fear, the insecurity, then it just kind of sits in here. And if I don't process it, if I go drink or eat or smoke something or numb out somehow, then it doesn't come out the other side. It sits in there and swirls around and it makes me sick, you know? And so I have to feel it all the way through But it's hard and overwhelming at first. And that's why most people fail in sobriety is because, you know, I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to stop smoking weed. I'm going to stop snorting this or whatever it is. And then ne the next day, life kicks you in the balls. But you're like, I don't know how to feel that way. So right. I'm going to go drink because that's really painful. And it's it's hard. Oh, that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, this is Sir Rowan Feathergood. And he's being naughty. Hi, Sir Rowan. Yeah, so tell us more about your book, or you have um, something else going on, or, and you're a coach too. So I, I was talking to, um, with Dawn earlier, and she's also a counselor for those that are uh, dealing with uh, sexual abuse or trafficking or any type of pain like that. She, I know she's well qualified. You can reach out to her if you're experiencing that type of pain, and she knows how to walk through that clearly because of everything she's been telling us. Yeah, please reach out to me on my website. There's, um, you know, there's a, a space where you can just uh, reach out for contact and I'll get in contact with you. But my experience with sharing my story has been, this is part of the grace that I feel like is that I had no idea it was going to help so many people, it was going to resonate with so many people. I just did it as, wrote it as honestly as I could. Again, my intentions were, um, I had to keep my intentions in check every time. You know, I, I had to let go of the outcomes. I had no idea. This, this is what, this was my process. I didn't have an outcome. I thought this was going to be for my daughter. It was going to be a story. I was memorializing this, but um, it ended up getting published because um, it was the next right thing when I got to that point. And, um, and it, and it worked out. And so a lot of people have been coming to me specifically um, when I have looked at my sobriety today, I have got to look at the trauma that I experienced as well. And I've got to look at, at the trauma from a female perspective because it's different. And, um, and, and I address those things because I had to in my own life. And um, I'm a member of many survivor groups. I've started many survivor groups and, um, you know, we, we support each other in a lot of ways, but trauma and how we respond to today and how we stay sober today is connected and we, we can't ignore it. And so really it's just a part, it's, it's a unique space that, um, that I get to help people with, you know, and I think that that's, that's important to me. That's my next right space, I think, because, um, because I can speak to walking through trauma and I can speak to you know getting back on your feet things tend to trigger us and throw us way back with trauma way back into the moment of abuse or pain um, that that 
that we had, we were powerless, we couldn't move, um, we were taken advantage of, we lost our voices. Those type of things resonate with us. Um, I'm involved with, you know, like I said, with the Department of State, I do trauma-informed care and uh, um, advocacy, and, um, and I help them build programs around trauma-informed uh, situations, you know, um, victim-centered, trauma-informed, and survivor-led. So um, I also build leadership among survivors. And so I mentor in that capacity as well. I want my, I want folks to thrive. I feel like everybody should be empowered. Those that got, that had their voices taken away have a lot to make up for. They have a lot to say, but it can't be debilitating and it can't, you know, it can't um, sabotage you. And a lot of times walking through trauma, I'm here to help anybody who wants to reach out and wants to have a chat and uh, you know, we can work something out. Uh, I am working on my second book. My first book is, um, this one is very earmarked. It's The Road Through Wonderland, Surviving John Holmes. Um, it was published by Medallion Press and is available on Amazon or my website. If you want me to sign it, I have some here in my apartment that I sign for people if they want that. Some people do. And, um, and then also, so I'm working on my second book now. And, you know, uh, building the relationships here now that we're on COVID, the one-on-one, -on -one more virtual relationships. Um, part of the healing process for me has been in writing my memoir. I've been able to historicize my family, my family dynamics, the things that happened, and also take responsibility for my actions when it was right to do so. You know, it was so healing, like I said, and so cathartic to get that on paper. And whether or not, like I said, the intention of a published book or just having it for yourself or passing it down to your child is really um, important. So if that's something that you're interested in, I do one-on-one -on -one counseling. That's a part of the mentorship. Um, not everybody wants to do that. It is a process, um, but you know, that's the stuff I work on. Awesome. Yeah, and that's a tool. You know, when we talk about all the tools in our toolbox, part of it is, uh, you know, getting that stuff out in any form, like that. doing this podcast. For me, this is one of my tools that I use to help me heal, too. It's like helping other people in some capacity you know if i if somebody's driving down the road and they're thinking i'm just tired of drinking i want to maybe kill myself or my wife or my you know something like, like these are thoughts that go through our head as like as addicts you know or practicing alcoholics or addicts and if mm -hmm. i can you know have an interview right here and help a couple people along the way or just that one person to stop being abusive to themselves or to their families or just want to commit suicide or just being depressed that's really the goal yeah. here. We don't do this for the money. <laughs> you know, it's like, I just want to yeah, reach yeah. people. I, I want to reach people and not have to suffer the way that I did. And that's really the, yeah, ultimately yeah. the goal. And that's one of the yeah. tools. And, you know, it's funny when we were talking about in the, in the early sobriety, when I, you know, we're going over the tools and the steps and everything, when I used to do a lot of AA and they're like, well, we have to give back. We have to volunteer and be of service. And I'm like, I don't have time for that, you know, <laughs> but you create a life of service. And all of a sudden yes, you yes. realize, it's like when I wake up in the morning, I'm like, how can I help people today? That keeps me sober. It keeps me sane. It keeps me happy. And that's why I keep doing it. So yeah. clearly you're on that path as well. And I'm so grateful that we had this talk. Maybe we could do it again sometime. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, hopefully the journey is long and fruitful for, you know, everybody who really takes this, these steps into, you know, sobriety you know here's the thing i know so many people too that that feel like they're not going to be the same if they don't use or they you know if they don't like they're going to change who they are because they built this they've they've been you know managing alcoholics or addicts for a long time and so their their work depends or their art depends on it and the truth is i was never more more creative um than i am sober i mean it's just amazing where you can go with your mind and your creativity and you know and the opportunities like i always say and this is a, a cliche that happens you know that we say a lot in recovery it's like don't quit before the miracle and i love that saying because it means it and you know when i sign my book i also write that in there sometimes so there's there's always light in the dark even in the darkest places yeah. and that's and i believe that I mean, I, I have lived that and I've lived that in some of the darkest places and I can go back and look at these really dark spaces and say, you know what, I can, I'm able to share that today because somebody that matters to somebody who's going to be able to say they can walk out too. They can walk out of a bad situation as well. Yeah. And, and I love that. You know, it's like when what you just said in the beginning of that was, you know, am I going to be that same person? I, I can't give up my identity, but I didn't really like that person. 
And, uh, you know, we say you only have to change one thing and that's everything. And thank God, because if I go back and was to hold on to some of those old, the old dentist, that old sick, insecure, fearful, angry guy, I, it wouldn't serve me at all. Like, and I love how, when they were like, if I would have written down what my life would look like, you know, 17 years into sobriety, I would have sold myself way short. You know, there's like definitely some things that I wish I, I had now or did differently or had this relationship or whatever, whatever it is. But look where I am. Like my life is incredible today, which is why I, there's nothing that a drink or a drug or any other type of um, mind altering substance is going to make better. So, right. Yeah. And the funny thing is the next right thing is not perfect. It's not the next perfect thing. It's just the next right thing. Thing. And with the information that you have at the moment and, you know, and as honest as, and I know that you say a lot about honesty, open-mindedness and willingness, and I totally 100% believe in that. But with a lot of honesty, you look at what is the next right thing. And then if things change and it didn't work out the way you thought it should, there are graces there and there are other ways to do the next right thing. It's complex, but it's very simple. It is, yeah. Thank you so much, Don. I really appreciate it. That This has been such a great talk and I know that you help a lot of people and I'm grateful I had a chance to be part of it. Oh, and if somebody wants to get in touch with you, I know it's don-shiller.com. Yes, please. Yeah, don-shiller.com and uh, just have a look at the website. Reach out to me. I'd love to have a chat with you. Thanks again. And everybody, thanks for tuning in. And please reach out to Dawn if you're struggling with any type of issues that you think she can help you with. And until then, I hope you're having a great day out there. Enjoy the sunshine. All right, everybody. Thanks again. I appreciate you tuning in to the Funky Brain Podcast. Have a great day and we'll talk to you soon. Bye for now. So you can't think your way into a new way of acting. You have to act your way into a new way of thinking and being. Hi, I'm Dennis Berry, best-selling author, speaker, and life coach for addiction recovery. So many people are stuck in their addiction, whether it's like drugs or alcohol or food or shopping or sex or money, and they think they can just stop or try to figure it out on their own, but they don't change anything in their lives. Nothing changes if nothing changes. In order for change to happen, you have to change something. My clients will be like, oh, I'll stop tomorrow, or if this happens, then I stop, or someday I'll just give it up. And then they just sit around and think, 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 and hope for different or better results, but it doesn't happen. You have to take action. Action most people aren't willing to take. People don't become willing until they're in enough pain, me included. And unfortunately, they wait, and they wait and time passes by. Even if you are willing, you don't even know where to begin. And that's where I come in. In my best-selling book, Funky Wisdom, A Practical Guide to Life, I talk about the how approach. How do I get sober? How do I stop doing drugs? How do I become healthier? How do I have more successful relationships? How do I become more financially successful? And the answer is how. Honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. I have to honestly admit that there's a problem. I have to honestly admit that things aren't going well and there needs to be changes. And then once I do that, the door opens and I become open to seeing new ways of living. And then I become willing to make those changes. You can't solve a problem with the same mind that created it. That's why I'm here to help. And you know, I've been working with clients for over 15 years and helping them get clean and sober and change their lives and achieve inner peace and success. If you or somebody you love is struggling and doesn't know where to begin and how to make those changes to get to where they need to be, give me a call. Not tomorrow or in a week from now when you are hungover and your life is falling apart. Call now. Start making that change today and you'll be glad that you did. I'm sending you love and good vibes. Have a great day today.